Good morning and welcome to the Christ the King this morning. In my family, end of August, uh, my kids have described it as really the first real months of summer, meaning there's no more uh, swim team at 7 a.m. Uh, all the summer camps have uh, come and gone, no more track practice. So one child actually said, finally, summer's here as we come uh, to the final week off summer. I grew up in northern Florida, and so uh, although this descriptor does not fit due to uh, just the very pleasant weather we've been having, we call these final days of summer the lazy, hazy days of summer. For me, there are some of my favorite days when there's no alarm clock. The highlights of the activity included, well, riding your bike around the neighborhood, going to 7-Eleven, picking up a soda, maybe sitting by a pond and picking up a rock or two and tossing it into the water, watching the rock splash, and then watching those seemingly endless cascade of ripples uh, from that impact of that rock. And it's that image that I want to utilize to guide our thoughts for this morning. The image of a rock splashing down on a on a smooth body of water. I want to think about that rock, and I want to think about the splash that it makes. And then I want to consider the endless ripples that cascade out from that impact. We're in Romans chapter 12. You will find some sermon notes in your service leaflet. Those sermon notes don't exactly follow the outline I just uh, articulated, but we'll hit all those points uh, in that outlined, as well as think of a rock, splash, and a ripple. It'll be helpful for you to have the text out in front of you. The letter to the Romans is the first of the letters of the New Testament. It's about seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Notice it begins with an appeal. I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, members of the church. Here, we find a transition in this letter, and this appeal is an appeal to their behavior. I appeal to you, and what's going to follow in 12, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 is a, a description or an encouragement of a Christian's behavior. I appeal to you to live in the following way. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter of the Ephesians, and you find a very similar pattern. Halfway through that letter, the Apostle Paul, the same author of this letter, says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, and his urging there in his appeal here are not an urging for belief, but an urging for a practice. Live in this following way. So that is what we will be considering the, the Christian behavior, the Christian practice. And it begins, and note the, 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 the transition. I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters. But his appeal is based in something. It's not just an appeal to their sense of right and wrong. It's not an appeal to their uh, moral capacity. He writes, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Now, to the uh, modern ear, that sounds like nothing more than just an interjection, like a parent saying to a child, for, for, for pity's sake, please take out the trash, or something of that nature. That's not the case here. No, the mercy of God is the 
content of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, act in the following way, following way by the mercy of God, in light of, because of the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God which is the foundation for the Christian's behavior. And it is the mercy of God that is the subject of these first 11 chapters. It's in God's mercy that he sends his son Jesus to live and die for undeserving sinners like you and me. It is in the mercy of God that he sends to us his very own spirit into our hearts. It is by the mercy of God that he justifies us freely by his faith so that we may call him Father, and he calls us sons and daughters. The first 11 chapters are a celebration of the mercy of God, and you can find this if you were to back up just a few verses from the chapter that we are considering, chapter, oh, chapter 11 of Romans. Uh, the final verses of that chapter begin or conclude in the following way. Just as you were at one time disobedient, but now you have received what? You've received mercy. You've received the mercy of God. Chapter 11, verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may show what? He may show his mercy to all. The mercy of God is not an abstract concept. The mercy of God is seen in the gift of his son, Jesus to live and die for you and me, to reconcile us to God. The mercy of God is a person, a person that you can encounter, a person that I can encounter. We encounter him as we open the Bible. We encounter the mercy of God in the person of Jesus as we come to worship and hear his word and gather around his table. And it, the mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ matters. Just like that rock thrown into the pond makes a difference. Encountering Jesus matters. It makes a difference for you and me. We will have to conclude that there is a big difference between encountering Jesus, the mercy of God, and not encountering Jesus. And here we find the Christian's behavior based in the mercy of God. He is the rock that causes the splash in all of our lives. So, I want to move on and consider that splash. How does the mercy of God affect you and me? What changes can we anticipate? Well, let's look on in this passage. Because of the mercy of God, present, chapter 12, verse 1, first present your bodies to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Secondly, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's two parts of our human person that are affected, that are changed uh, by the mercy of God. The first is the outward part, the body, the flesh, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears. The second part is the inward part, the mind. And when I, the, the writer, the apostle Paul, the author, writes mind, we tend to think of mind as the intellect. I don't think uh, in the heart would be the feeling part, right? That you think up here, you feel down here. Those sort of distinctions were not known then. By saying the mind, he's simply referring to the outer part, or pardon me, the body, the outer part, and the inner part, the mind. So, Jesus Christ, the encounter with the real person, affects the whole person, body and mind. We have to be aware of two, two deficiencies in following Jesus. The first would be a deficiency we could call hypocrisy. Now, the uh, 
Jesus was constantly berating the Pharisees. You're probably aware of his distaste for hypocrisy. The Pharisees who looked good on the outside, did all the right things on the outside. But some of Jesus' harshest critiques were reserved for the Pharisees, who were just a whitewashed tomb, right? They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, nothing, nada, right? They were good on the body, bad on the mind, bad on the soul. So that's one danger. That's one deficiency. Second deficiency is sentimentality. Sentimentality is marked by all emotion, but no corresponding devotion, right? So the heart is good. The heart loves the Lord and praises the Lord, but there's just no corresponding action, right? One worships the body, uh, follows Christ with the body, not with the soul. The other follows Christ with the soul, but not with the body. Both are deficiencies. Why? Because an encounter with the real person of Jesus affects the whole person, body and soul. The rock, Jesus, makes a splash. And that splash, that change, that you and me, right? A rock will change the contour of the water, just like an encounter with Jesus changes you and me, both body and soul. That splash has ripples. A person with a renewed mind, a holy body, will have ripple effects. And now as we move on, I want to consider what those ripple effects, where will we see the change? What ripple effects should we anticipate? Follow along with me. Chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So in the next few chapters, the apostle, the author, is going to articulate God's will for you and me. And you know what is in the center of his target, in the crosshairs, what the apostle Paul is most concerned with us, uh, exercising God's will in, is our human relationships. Next three chapters, there are a total of eight different relationships uh, that you and I all inhabit. I've mentioned four of them in your sermon notes. But there are eight different relationships in these next three chapters. And it's in these relationships that we discern God's will. Let me give you one example. One example of many. This is two verses out of chapter 12, verse 16. Right? He writes, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Two verses. And in those two verses, how many relationships did you count? Four. Your relationship with one another. What's God's will for our relationship with one another? Harmony. Our enemies. What is God's will for our relationship with our enemies? Charity. Our relationship with ourselves. Don't think wisely of yourself. What's our relationship to ourselves? Sobriety. Or our relationship to the lowly. What is God's will for our relationship to the lowly? Solidarity. And that's two verses. There's an entire three chapters that explore every variety of relationship that you and I could possibly inhabit. What's the point? The point is this, that our discipleship is lived out in the arena of our relationships with other people. Let me summarize where we've been so far. Jesus is the rock that makes a splash, changes you and me, body and mind. Those ripple effects of that splash are seen primarily 
in our relationships to other people. Or, how about this? Our Christian faith is an encounter with a, a real person, Jesus, who is the mercy of God. And that encounter with a real person changes the entire person, body and soul, which affects our relationship with whom? Every person. A real person, the whole person, affecting every person. That is the nature of our lived-out faith. I want to make three applications and observations. I want to think about the importance of our human relationships. First, the importance. It's noteworthy, isn't it, that as this author describes our discipleship, describes the arena in which we live out our faith, he identifies what? Your human relationships. Indulge me in this thought exercise. If you had to give yourself a grade, how am I doing? How are you doing as a follower of Jesus? What would be the criteria upon which you'd give yourself a grade? Wouldn't you have to conclude, based upon this text that we've just been considering, that our relationships with other people would have to constitute 90% of that grade? Our faith is inseparable from our relationship with one another to live in harmony. Our relationship with the less fortunate to live in solidarity. Our relationship with our enemies to live in charity. Our relationship with ourselves to live in sobriety. Our Christian faith is lived out in the arena of our relationships. And you cannot separate one from the other. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, offers some tantalizing hints as to why this might be the case. Why is it that your human relationships are so important, the arena upon which you live out your discipleship? He writes the following. Weight of Glory. He says, there are simply no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Sorry, I'm having a fine time, hard time finding my quote. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, empires, these things, these are mortal, and to you and me are just the passing of a gnat. No, but it's the people who live and work, the people to your left and right, who are, uh, if we could see them as they would one day be, would be creatures we'd be sorely tempted to worship. Either that or run in fear. He concludes, he says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, which he's referring to the Holy Communion, next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object, the most important thing you will ever encounter. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way as our, the sacrament that we'll celebrate. For in him, Christ is truly hidden. Isn't that great? You've never met a mere mortal. That's why your relationships with human beings are so important. 
Secondly, we have the importance. Secondly, let's consider the difficulty of good relationships. It's very difficult. It's hard to live in harmony. It's hard to live in solidarity with the lowly. It's hard to live in charity with those who we would count as our enemies. It's very difficult. What do you need? Well, let me suggest that you need two things. Two things that we found as we opened our chapter. You need a renewed mind and you need a transformed body. In order to have healthy relationships, you've got to have both. I have found that healthy relationships require an inordinate amount of self-talk. Requires me to constantly renew my mind. Healthy relationships require me to remind myself that the people that I interact with, say someone gives me a slight little snub, I have to remind myself that they didn't know what they were doing. I don't know the whole story. If I was in a similar situation, I may have acted very similar. It requires what? A renewal of the mind. I'm not sure how uh, if self-talk is the same thing as a uh, renewed mind, but that is the best I can come to applying this uh, principle. Healthy relationships require constant mental recalibration, require a renewed mind. But healthy relationships require more than just mental recalibration, don't they? Healthy relationships require the engagement of not just the mind, but the body as well. Renew the mind, present the body. A preacher was standing up in front of a hus uh, husband and wife-to-be. preacher looked at the man and said, do you love your spouse-to-be? Yes, yes, I do. Will you do anything for, your, for this woman? Yes, yes, I will. Will you lay down your life for her? Yes. Will you sacrifice yourself to the flame and more? Yes, all this, all this and more. Will you pick up your socks <laughs> for them? We take out the trash for them. You see his point? Sentimentality only gets you so far if it's not backed up by actual engagement of the body. Two of my children were having a uh, dispute. Pardon the repetition. I believe I've shared this before. Two of them were having a dispute, and I addressed one. I said, what happened? Once they, they, they hit me. So I addressed the accused. And I said, is it true that... Or one said, they hit me, so I hit him back. And I addressed the accused, and I said, is it true that you hit your, hit your sibling? Uh, they said, yes, it is true. But I hit him nicely. And he, <laughs> he, he hit me back meanly. the quality of that relationship does not depend upon one's assessment of sentimentality. It depends upon whether one actually hit or not. What do you need for healthy relationships? You need exactly what the Apostle Paul said as we begin. You've got to engage the body. Our charity towards our enemies and sentiment is no good. If we act in vengeance, our solidarity with the lowly in sentiment is no good if we respond in avoidance. Our harmony 
with one another in sentiment only does no good if we live in isolation. It's difficult, and it's difficult to do. Mental, what's it require? Mental, constant mental recalibration and engagement of the body. No other way. Don't be... Uh, don't let the hard work of Christian faith confuse you. Faith and mercy are not opposed to work. They're opposed to earning. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our status with God. No, it's, we have our standing with God because of His mercy and His grace and that alone. Earning is an attitude. You earn nothing before God. You receive it by mercy Work is different from earning. Work is an action. Effort is an action. Earning is an attitude. And you better believe good relationships require a good amount of work. But let's not miss the fun of it. I've talked about the importance. I've talked about the difficulty of good relationships. But friends, this is where life is. It is much better, much more fun, much more noble, much more life-giving to live in harmony than to live in isolation. It is much more generous, much more magnanimous to live in uh, charity with your enemies than in uh, an attitude of vengeance. It's much more, there's much more life in living with the lowly than living in avoidance. This is where life is. And Jesus invites us into that wide and wonderful, raucous world of real relationships as we encounter the real person, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, who changes the whole person and affects our relationship with every person. Let's pray. Perhaps in your mind's eye, you can think of a relationship that just needs a little consideration. A relationship that is not as it ought to be. Let's begin by considering the mercy of God, who in his mercy gave us his son Jesus, justifies us freely by faith. All that we have, all that we are, we are because of his mercy and his grace. Let's make, let that rock of Jesus Christ make a splash in our lives. Let's consider, how do I need to be mentally recalibrated? How does my mind need to be renewed, transformed? How does my body need to act as well? May God, who has given us the will to do these things, give us the grace to perform them. Amen.